G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 9 of This Week in Startups Australia. Throughout Series 9, we're focusing on one question. What is it that makes a startup successful? Is it a great idea, a great team, great customers, or is it something else altogether? This is an important question for startups. It's a fundamental question, and on this series, we're looking for answers. We're talking to people who have been successful. We're asking them how it happened. We're talking to startups on the road to success and asking them how they plan to get there. And in this, our final news special of Series 9, we'll take a look at the biggest corporate acquisition in Australia's history of a startup, and then the biggest philanthropic donation in Australia's history from a startup. That, plus all the news that startups need on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Squarespace. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. Go to squarespace.com twista for a free trial. Twista is also sponsored by Odoo, a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Go to odoo.com twista to check it out. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by User Testing. Experience what your customer experiences with user testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed decisions for your business. Twista's production partner for Series 9 is UTS Startups, where they're equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To learn more about UTS Startups, go to startups.uts.edu.au. It is my great pleasure to have two guests who are new to the Twista News Special. Petra Andren is a legend. As CEO and Managing Director of Cicada Ventures, she oversaw its growth into Australia's hub for science and deep tech startups. And that knowledge has proven invaluable in her new role at Twiggy Forest, Mindaroo, and Tatarang efforts. The first one is philanthropic. The second is profit-focused. And focusing on all things science and health tech. Welcome, Petra. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Joining Petra is another legend, Alan Jones, one of the most respected startup mentors and advisors in Australia. Alan works with Startmate, another great accelerator, and is general partner at Mate Ventures. Welcome back to Twista, Alan. Thank you so much for having me again, mate. It's, I love your show. All right, we're going to dive right in. Now, literally, I think... Seven hours after we recorded the last special, the largest corporate takeover in Australian history was announced of a startup, Afterpay. 
$29 billion. I did the math. That is half of the market capitalization of ANZ. <laughs> That's how big this is. All right. So you take one of the big four, it's 50% of the smallest of the big four. All right, Petra, was this was this actually a purchase or is it a merger or what is it? First of all, disclaimer, fintech is not my space, but I can definitely comment on on uh, on deals and um, you know, and how media reports on deals because I think that's really uh, at the core of this story, right? So I think the key misunderstanding often comes from deal structure. So to me, I have to say this looks like a merger. Um, having said that, it's no discredit. I'm not saying, I'm not questioning the merit of the transaction, not at all. I think it's great news. But again, you know, th these headlines that are sort of screaming after pay founders, $5 billion payday, they are inconsistent with the deal structure. And also I saw some claims about, was it investors exiting for 100 times their money, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the reality is that the buyer, in this case, the US FinTech Square, it's, it's not offering cash. It is a, a shareholder swap. Uh, you know, where the shareholders swap their afterpay shares for, I think, was 20% of the stake in Square, right? So, in other words, we've got a situation where no one, not even the founders, is getting any or getting any cash. Yet the board is obviously recommending to do this, uh, and, and they are recommending, to, we should point out as well, uh, at a share price that is well below historical highs, if you like. But strategically, and again, I, I'm not fintech here, but it does make sense, you know, to for, for Afterpay to merge with a broader fintech. It, it looks sensible to me. Alan, you, you probably know more about this space than me, so you can comment on that. But I think particularly a square has its own bank and, you know, the financials certainly look better than Afterpay's. Receiving 20% of square looks like a great deal for Afterpay shareholders, i got to say. But, again, it's media reporting, and I see this in HealthTech, which is my space, uh, all the time how, you know, investments, acquisitions alike are being quite misleading. And biotech, we structure things around milestones. And media often portray these milestones as having already been achieved, which uh, is, is never the case. So I guess, you know, it's always worthwhile to sort of, yeah, just look at the deal structure and just go in and unpack to sort of understand what's really going on here. All right. So, Alan, such a big deal made radar even in America, right? There was a lot of reporting in American media and the journal and all the other places for this. Does such a big deal coming out of Australia make Australian startup fintech look more relevant and real generally to folks in America and maybe in Asia and Europe who would just be tending to overlook it? Do we see other startups maybe getting the benefit of the attention that's been brought to this deal? For sure. I, th I think one of the challenges for the fintech sector in Australia, I guess of all the technology sectors in Australia, actually the fintech sector has generally been the one with the highest profile amongst the general Australian population, um, within the regulatory environment, obviously um, in the banking industry, but it has been held back by you know the the real limiting factor that Australia just isn't a very big nation. We just don't have, you know, we have a, a high percentage of of banked citizens, but but we just don't have enough citizens. And so I don't think our fintechs on the on the world stage ever really had much of a presence prior to this deal. Um, another thing holding it back is you know we have a, a very mature, stable, safe banking system which protected us from from the fintech crisis but at the same time kind of stifles a bit of innovation in australia as well so i don't think anybody was really expected to see that what happened was in, the, in that buy now pay later space the bnpl space um after pay got out well ahead of of 
competitors in other markets in terms of its cost of acquiring a customer, in terms of its ability to, to deliver a great service. Um, NPS scores were, were, were I, I believe, much, much higher for Afterpay than, than competitors in other markets. Um, and, and then, you know, as, as Petra says, you know, this is a, a very big kind of merger sort of acquisition. Um, and it's important to understand, again, that, you know, all those people who are on paper much, much more wealthy now do still have um, earn-out requirements and they do need to hit their goals before they really get to turn much of that into cash. But, you know, at the same time, if it was me, you know, I, I might be speaking to a private banker about, um, you know, getting a loan out on the value of, of some of that equity. and. At least go and shouting some friends an expensive dinner or two. You know, maybe not buying, but maybe leasing a super yacht for a bit of the summer, something like that. Um, I would don't recommend that. I'm not a licensed financial advisor, and I don't think you should do that. You can get caught out, <laughs> particularly in this, this case if, if, if Square's you know share price plunges over the next few years for whatever reason. Makes heaps of sense for Square, though. One of the takeaways, and this is for both of you. One of the takeaways seems to be because Afterpay made the transition to global fairly quickly and incurred a lot of cost. You know, and they're not really profitable because they're building globally. That that was one of the things that made them so attractive as an acquisition candidate. Then, yes, yes, absolutely. And 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 it was you know a large gap in Square's portfolio. And and you know sometimes an acquisition is just a better way into a market. All right. So now that we've seen. We, whether you want to call it an exit or a merger, some, it's spectacular just in terms of size. I mean, it's dwarfed everything in the Australian corporate sector, not just the startup sector. It's the largest acquisition in Australian history. Is this a one and done or is this something that we can expect to see now out of the startup sector every couple of years, maybe even every year? Are we going to start to produce these, I don't know what we would call them, super unicorns that will now start to really generate that kind of interest? I don't think we're going to start seeing it every year, but I certainly think it's great that our entrepreneurs have something to aspire to, finally. You know, we do need to have more of a positive vibe, I think, in this sector. I just keep hearing about, you know, how Australian entrepreneurs don't have risk appetite, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and I just, I don't subscribe to that. I really think it's just, we, we need to mature a little bit. Uh, and after I after I left Zakata, I actually spent quite a bit of time traveling uh, around the world and visiting startup clusters in, in US and, and Europe. And I got to say, Australia has a lot going for it today. And when I first came to Australia six years ago, I didn't find a community. There was nothing, right? And <laughs> there really was nothing. <laughs> and that's changed completely. Albeit it's still a bit fragmented. And obviously, there's still a lot of things we need to, to really get behind and, and holes to fill. But I feel that we're slowly moving towards um, something where, you know, we're getting more mature and we're going to see more of this, but not one every year, but we're certainly going to see more. And I, I also feel that this slow move, it is slower. Europe is already, Europe in particular has moved towards science-based sort of startups a bit more than we, we're moving towards that, but not quite there yet. Uh, and we need investors to not all chase the same deals, but also get onto that bandwagon if we are to transition to this knowledge-based economy that we really need to leverage all the ideas and world-class research that we have. But long story short, I think that I saw somewhere some stats saying that we are one of the fastest-growing um, startup nations at the moment. I don't know if that's true. We're certainly behind US and other places. But I see a significant improvement from previous year, and I see things maturing. And I think we're going to see more of this, but not Perhaps not one every year, but I'm I'm optimistic, and I think we all need to be optimistic and have role models and be positive about what we can do. And 
the precedent is set now, right? That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe not this big every couple of years, but there's more than one way to get to a billion dollar in excess. And one way to do that is, is to have lots of smaller exits. You know, five, two hundred million dollar exits would probably make a bigger difference to the Australian economy. Um, it's more sustainable. And, 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 you know, we've got to remember that, that a successful startup ecosystem is a flywheel. You've got to power the, the back end of the flywheel as well as the front end of the flywheel. We've all been working very hard for the past 10 years on. <laughs> Increasing the capital and the and the knowledge acquisition and, and the talent acquisition at the front end of the flywheel. Now you know we have an opportunity. Every time there's an exit above a hundred or, or even above fifty mil, um, that exit throws off five or ten or twenty or fifty new millionaires who, after they've finally bought a house in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, actually have a chance to you know go and do some angel investing, uh, maybe put some money in, in, in a couple of venture funds, um, and and that's how. You know, that's how you build a boulder. That's how you build a San Francisco. Close the circle. Yeah. All right. The other side of the coin here is a few days after Afterpay was announced, there was another acquisition, a company in Brisbane called ClipChamp. Now, I admit that I hadn't actually heard of them, but they've been going for quite a while. They're backed by Steve Baxter and all of this. Microsoft bought them. There's a rumor that they're going to be deeply integrated as they are into Windows 11, which would be a fantastic outcome. But the details of the deal were not disclosed. Alan, what what do we read into the fact? Because you normally think startup founders want to shout to the hills, oh, my God, we made all this money for the investors. We're rich now. I can buy property in Sydney now. You know, (laughs) whatever it is, right? But you really, people want to lead with that. And when that gets buried, you wonder why. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I bet um, Steve Baxter and Stu Glean and some of the other investors in ClipChamp are just, you know, chomping at the bit, and and maybe you know, privately, secretly, you know, the word will eventually get out, and on the street, you'll eventually find out roughly what it was worth. This this can happen for a for a bunch of different reasons. You know, sometimes you know, a, a company um, in in dis- some distress um, can be acquired for not much more than you know the 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 salaries for for three four years of of the team and uh and that might be because you've got some great technology or or maybe because hiring costs are really high right now and here we can acquire a business just to get a whole complete team of one go to go and work on a product for us sometimes that happens i don't think that's the case in in this instance um i I don't think that's the case in largely for me because the clip tank clip champ journey has been such a long one you know this has been a very long return on investment for clip champs investors and so i think it's much more likely to be actually you know a, a financially meaningful outcome for everybody so why they keep it secret is probably down to the fact that microsoft doesn't have to declare it it's below the threshold that the microsoft has as a public company where it needs to declare this to to the market um, and every time you declare and a major business decision you make as a public company, you send a signal to the market, and that may drive your, your your stock price up or down. And of course, that affects you know the net worth of the CEO and the board and the management team. And so, if you don't need to do it, you just you generally don't. All right. So, in, in a sense, that it's it's a question of prudence of, of the, that the de- decision to bury this is a prudential decision around the stock price. All right. You're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Twista is proudly sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you can blog, 
publish content, promote your business, announce upcoming events and special projects, sell products and services of all kinds, and much more. No matter what you need to do online, Squarespace has the answer. And don't take their word for it. Here's what the folks at Remote Demo Day have to say. Now, back in 2020, they decided to create Remote Demo Day for founders to pitch to thousands of angel investors live. They purchased the domain RemoteDemoDay.com and had the site up and running in minutes because Squarespace is so easy to use. Remote Demo Day has been a success so far, and Squarespace has played a huge part in that. From websites to online stores, from marketing tools to analytics, Squarespace has what you need to succeed online. Go to squarespace.com slash twista for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the code twista to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash twista. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia, third news special of Series 9. We're here with Minaru's Petra Andren and Mate Ventures' Alan Jones. All right, topic three. We love stories about success here at Twista, and by golly, do we have a success story now. In the middle of September, Canva accepted another $200 million U.S. in investment, and that put their valuation north of $54 billion Australian dollars. That makes them officially larger than Telstra. But that's, that's only the half of it. In the Medium post where Melanie Perkins announces that investment, she also said, just almost as an aside, that she and co-founder Cliff Obrecht were about to throw in 30% of the shares in Canva, which they control, into the Canva Foundation. And folks, that's about, again, $15 billion Australian in value. I, When I read that, I, I didn't even know how to react. This is, first off, this is probably the biggest philanthropic donation in Australian history. This is something that Bill Gates didn't get around to until after he owned the world. It's something that Jeff Bezos hasn't gotten around to yet, although McKenzie certainly has. These folks are doing it right at the start. What is this What is this telling us? Well, I think Petra has to... Um declare a conflict of interest here. Um, representing Mindaroo Foundation, she represents one of previously Australia's um, biggest philanthropists. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, what this tells us is, is that um, what's gotten uh, Melanie and Cliff and Cameron to this point is, is phenomenal dedication to the cause, you know, from, from the very beginning. Uh, they set out to do, you know, what Everybody, with the exception of Nikki Shivak, I think, thought was impossible back then. You know, Australia had never created um, a, a, a software in the browser kind of product um, of this ambition, this scale before. And 
you know, Melanie isn't a software engineer. Cliff wasn't a software, you know, like they were a team, you know, you look as, a, as an investor, you look for teams who have a track record, teams who've built and sold a successful startup or been part of the leadership team of a successful startup. Well, yes, you know, and, uh, and, and the Canva founders just hadn't done that before. So you don't get from there to here without incredible, you know, obviously capacity, um, and, and potential, but also just sheer dedication to the cause. And they made their minds up at the very beginning, as Melanie says, you know, this is going to be a key, you know, enabler to do what we really want to do to make the world a better place. Um, you know, I don't think anybody would have um, quibbled if it had only been 10 billion or 8 billion or 5 billion, you know? Oh, or yeah. even 1 billion, yeah. which is effectively what they've set yeah. aside for themselves, yeah. right? I mean, it's not, they will, they will not be pleading poverty. They still have quite a bit of value. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, and it, it, it's a huge um, validation for investors in the business as well. You know, like investors love to see that the founders of a business are, are, are motivated to go out and, and work just as hard for the next 10 years, you know, and, and we're seeing Melanie Cliff and Cameron go, okay, like, you know, uh, we're good. I now have to turn this billion dollars into another $10 billion. Come along for the ride. But I don't think it's that surprising because they've been on this journey. Well, it's surprising, the, the, the sheer size of it. But I think they've really, it's been in the Canva DNA from the very start with a 1% ple- pledge, et cetera. They've sort of been talking about this for, for a long time. But I, it, I think it's really smart to do this right now as well because I think it really attracts talent. Uh, if I, you know, being somebody who represents Tatarang and Mindori Foundation, Mindori Foundation, I see all kind of people having that kind of vision and doing good or, or you know, ha- having impact, what sort of, what that does to people, it really does attract the best of the best. Um, and I think it's, it's a great recipe for that. And I think we'll see more of it because investors do want not just risk return, the risk return impact, the three. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And and consumers, they see value and impact as well. So, you know, I, I think it's great. It's inspiring. And I hope that we will see more of it. Now, here's my real question, because I read this basically as soon as it went up on Medium. I posted it on Twitter. There has been one small article in the Financial Review about this and one small article in the ABC and I think maybe a small article in Fairfax. That's it. And we're not, again, we're talking the largest philanthropic, the largest charitable donation in the history of the nation. You would think that that would be rolling through the news cycle for weeks and weeks and weeks. And somehow it hasn't seemed to have landed with people. Do we have any idea why? Yeah, my guess is, is it's, it's because, you know, outside of that, there's not really very much to report on them. You know, so, you know, they don't have a, a huge Swan River palace, you know, they don't have um, an enormous um, motor yacht in, in, you know, somewhere in the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, they do a bit of kite surfing. They like to take their team to, you know, uh, tropical destinations for a little bit of a, of a team bonding um, adventure once a year or so when, when there's no pandemic. But yeah, really, like, they're very, very focused on their work and they're, you know, humble, self-effacing people. It's really hard to get that sort of celebrity, you know, there's no supercars, there's no wild drug-fueled parties. Um, they're just really nice people and that's boring. So, I mean, Petra, what do you reckon? Because doesn't it seem like, I mean, you work with the Philanthropic Foundation, which actually does do very well at being able to get press around itself and what the work is that it's doing. 
is there is this something that Canva and the Canva Foundation actually now need to think about doing in order to sort of raise more awareness about the work that's being done? Probably, but you know, I mean, they haven't actually done anything with this money yet. It's it's an announcement, right? So they need. I think they say they're going to use it for extreme poverty, whatnot. But I think in, until we actually see the initiatives and actions and the cha- the, the shares transferred, I think that's when we'll see more reporting on this. So I agree with you. I mean, it's it's huge and, and it's it's amazing, and we should see more of it, but. I think it's just not being put to action just yet. And I, I think watch the space. Yeah, and even there, you know, they've announced they're doing, you know, a, a, an MVP, mm. one one little grant to see how that goes. Exactly. And that's and that's ten million, you know. So I can't wait to see what happens when they when they really get to work. It's exactly. Be huge. Yeah, yeah. All right, so good. So we will definitely put a watch this space in, which is good because then it will be a recurring topic on the Twisted News specials. All right, next topic: VCs. For good. Now, so we're going to pick up on that theme and bring it a little bit forward with the the pivot of VC firm Giant Leap. They have a new fund that is all about facilitating world-changing innovations, in innovations that will make the world better. Does this mean, Alan, that we're seeing the rise of a new crop of ESG, environmental, social, government, VC firms? And what does that mean? Yes, uh, we are seeing that, and yes, it is coming. And and I think, um, you know, and investment funds really used to be about creating you know financial returns for investors and and nothing else, and and how we changed the world, how we made the world a better place. Um, was with was with philanthropy. Um, we've seen a, a blurring of the lines progressively over time. You know, with with people like George Soros and Bill Gates, and um, and and uh, investors have started to realise over the time that it's actually possible to to blend the two. And, uh, and in Australia now, we're starting to see people who, you know, perhaps are economically centrist or economically even conservative but socially progressive and there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there for you know how western democracies are are, are making so little progress on things that that matter very much to to people who don't have uh the privilege of being in the top one percent and 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 it's a fascinating thing to see capital start to take on these challenges where before we might have counted on you know our our our, our national government or, or a un body All right and petra i don't mean to bury lee because this is very much exactly where you work so can you speak from your own experience about what it means to be working in I think Mindaru has this, you know, it's facilitating, it's investing, right, as a nonprofit, but it's doing it around an ESG framework. Well, so I represent Mindaru and Tatarang. And so for the Mindaru Foundation, they have a number of initiatives. And there's also a strategic impact fund that sits underneath the Mindaru Foundation and uh, invests in uh, initiatives, technologies that align with those initiatives. Uh, so, so that's essentially how it works. But look, just going back to, uh, you know, is this a new crop of VC? I actually think it's much, much bigger than that. I think that many established VCs are also moving towards looking more closely again at this risk return impact. Uh, and the reason for that is that these companies are actually doing really well. So, you know, there's a lot of data on this now that, you know, this notion that impact businesses, you know, you've got to trade off profit or something, it just doesn't hold true anymore. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, 
I th- and I think the transparency around impact is also, you know, we've we got the technology to do that uh, and that's going to be really key. Uh, somebody said, you know, it's going to, transparency of impact is going to be like the microchip was for the tech revolution. I didn't say that. That's a guy called Sir Ronald Cohen that if you're European, you've heard about him. He's sort of the father of not just British venture capital but also of impact investment. Uh, and, and I think that is true. We are getting closer to you know, objective measurements of impact and there is more data. The Harvard Business School is, is looking at this a lot. You can go on their website and you can see how they're really trying to, to show and it's clear that, that companies that, you know, pursue impact actually perform better. Impact businesses tend to have more females involved as well. I had to throw it in there. Uh, and as we know, diverse companies tend to do better. And I think it's sort of 60% of impact businesses tend to be more diverse. And so there you go. It's, it's a good investment as well as, you know, good for, for everyone. So the pivot isn't just one VC firm in Melbourne. It's the entire industry becoming sensitive to both new priorities, but also new opportunities. Correct. All right. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. When we come back, we will return to the core theme of Series 9, success. Twista is proudly sponsored by Odoo. One of the toughest parts of building a company is choosing which tools and service providers to use. There are so many functions in a startup, and each space has endless vendors. There's sales tools, email marketing, accounting, HR and payroll, project management, customer support, point of sale, e-commerce. It goes on and on, and eventually you end up with a Frankenstack of tools that cost a lot and don't integrate properly. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you scale your business. For instance, their accounting products are perfect for anyone who's ready to upgrade from Excel or QuickBooks but doesn't want to break the bank with some of the more expensive options out there. It's all simple and modular, so you use what you need and all of their apps integrate perfectly with each other. Your first app is free forever, and right now Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. Take $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twista to check it out. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twista. And we're back on the last Twista News Special of Series 9 with Petra Andron and Alan Jones. Now, I have been asking every guest on Series 9 to reflect on what it takes for a startup to become successful. And both of you have acres of experience here. You have both seen a lot of startups. You have advised and mentored more than a few. Now, Petra, what have you learned in your long experience about what makes a startup successful? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you probably are going to have to trim my, my answer because I could go on forever in this one. Um, someone very smart once told me that, you know, it's about pattern recognition. And after you've looked at hundreds and hundreds of startups, you develop some sort of radar, I suppose. And I guess I have been fortunate enough to, to look at hundreds and hundreds of these opportunities in, in different geographies as well, which which has helped hopefully um, 
develop a feel, but sort of putting it into words is hard. What, what I look for in a startup differs depending on the industry that they operate in and stage somewhat. But I suppose generally, uh, if I'm going to put it to words, it's three categories that I dive into in any assessment and any that I do, uh, you know, regardless of which side of the table, if, I, if it's an investment due diligence process or if I'm mentoring a startup and I'm trying to find out what the weaknesses are and, and look at how I can fill those holes. So those three categories are the team, market opportunity, and the tech. And a company for me needs to, to really rate highly on all of those, on, on those three categories uh, because to me that's an indication of success. So if I sort of break that down a bit further as well. So team, I mean, I can talk about that for a long time, but a team that can really, it's, it's all about the people at the end of the day. Um, and a team that can execute, knows the market, driven founders, full-time you know I, I spend a lot of time in the life sciences space and I do not like part-time consultants I see that a lot that's a no-no for me I prefer oftentimes to have teams where you know I've got science as well as somebody who's a bit more business oriented depends on the stage as well that becomes more important as the company scales I like founders who have self-awareness and know what they're good at I really believe in this build on your strength and outsource your weaknesses and know what those weaknesses are and, and again, I guess founders who are close to the problem, again, now I go into health tech again because that, that is my space, um, you know, founders that really understand the problem because they may come from the healthcare system, whatnot, they're really passionate about it and they've got the patience to make it happen. Uh, I do like that. Storytellers, again, that's a huge thing in, in the life sciences space nowadays. If you cannot explain to the mere models what you're doing, it's not going to be a good thing. So, you know, um, team. Look, I could go on forever about the team, but team, founders, it's it's really, really important. Then, you know, if I go to the market, obviously there has to be a big enough market for it to, to make sense. If I look at, you know, return, product market fit, we all know about that. Um, again, in my world, if I go health tech, because I don't want to duplicate what Alan's going to say, uh, you know, I think clinical workflows, fitting into those uh and understanding how they work is really important. Um, another thing that I see a lot of people um, failing at is understanding, again, this is health tech, that you often have somebody who uses your product, which different is, it's totally different to the one that chooses your product. And again, it's totally different to the one who pays for it. So your value proposition needs to address and it'll be slightly different, all those customers, if you want to call them that. And that is just something that, you know, I keep banging into people and that really is something I see um, uh, often not addressed. And then pathway to market, again, in health tech, the regulatory pathway, you need to understand it. That dictates a lot of things. Um, you know, is there a potential exit? What does that look like? All those sorts of things. And then we get to the tech. Um, sustainable competitive advantage, again, if I go back to health tech is important. That can be through an intellectual property position or, or some other way. Um, if it's artificial intelligence, you know, uh, and a lot of diagnostics, artificial intelligence, if I go into that, I look at the data set that you have access to because, you know, nothing, your, your AI is only be as good as the data that you feed it with. And so uh, access to relevant data sets is really important there. But look, I'm just bringing in some example. I could go on forever. But if I sum it up for any industry, it is the team, the market and the tech and the subcategories that I put under that in my head as I look at something will differ slightly depending on what industry you're in. But that's that's really what makes a, a company successful. And, again, um, humble founders that know what they're good at and know what they're not good at, they're really what sort of sells me on something. 
All right. Alan, you are known for having, I think, an extremely empathetic approach to working with founders and with startups. Speaking from that empathy, what are the qualities that you see when you're working with them that are resonant around, you know, not that they're just good people, but that they're clearly going to be successful people in that? Yeah. So first of all, I'd like to define success, you know, because as as an investor, the sort of success I'm looking for from the companies that I invest in uh, might be very different, you know, because it's, it's a very high risk profession investing in early stage tech companies. You need to see potential for a very high returns from that. But um, at the same time, uh, success for individuals and, and even success for companies needn't result in a, in a massive financial return for investors. If you're able to build um, a business which is stable and employs a crew of people who really enjoy working together and, and you do good things for customers, um, you know, that's a great definition of success. If you spend a few years working as part of an early startup team and ultimately that, that startup um, fails, but you've learned a bunch of new skills. You've got a bunch of new, really good relationships with people you'd love to work with again. You know, maybe that's a, a success along the way towards some other kind of success in the future. So I guess, you know, that's part of my empathy hat on. I, I think the other thing that I like to see in founders is that for most of us working in, in tech startups is an opportunity to face your flaws and and your weaknesses and and be mature enough to to recognize that um to succeed you're going to need to either work on work on those you know kind of neglect your your innate talents and work on those skills in which you're weakest either that or you're going to need to find a way to outsource that in, in an affordable scalable and sustainable way over time so you know i, I every now and again i i have a go at doing my own accounting my own bookkeeping terrible terrible idea i'm in my 50s now and i've really tried um and so the best solution for that for me is is to outsource in order to do that i need to find somebody that i can reliably outsource to over time so that i'm solving a problem for them you know and they enjoy the relationship with me i'm not always trying to drive them down to lowest bottom dollar i'm not always throwing a whole bunch of randomly sorted files at them the day before the end of the tax year and saying, hey, can I get my refund by tomorrow? You know, that's not a sustainable relationship. So for most of us, you know, it is, I like to work with people who have the potential to look inside themselves and say, you know what, I'm a rock star at this. These other areas, I need some work. And, and you know, what's my plan for, for covering those bases? Then in terms of what makes startups successful, I'd say probably of all the different things that a startup can be great at if, if there's only one thing that i can pick then it would be sales because you know the history of the technology company and some of the biggest technology companies in the world make pretty ordinary products you know i don't want to name name salesforce or microsoft but um some of those products are a bit you know a bit ordinary as a customer experience and a little frustrating to use and yet you know they dominate they dominate markets how do they dominate well you know, probably it's got to do with really, really great work in sales. It's supported by really great marketing. You know, so if you're in a market where you're insufficiently differentiated, the best sales and marketing team is going to win. If if you're the first entrant into a market which didn't exist until you launched, then the best sales and marketing is going to drive adoption amongst early adopters. So at the end of the day, you know, I'd rather have great salespeople who can sell a pretty ordinary prototype of a minimum viable product so that I've got the revenue and the cash flow to be able to go out and hire better engineers and better front-end designers and, and better sysadmins over time so I can build a better product. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Petra. We will be right back. 
Twista is proudly sponsored by User Testing. Are you launching a new product, developing a new prototype, rolling out a new campaign? User Testing lets you see, hear, and talk to your customers to understand how they experience your brand, your product, and your services. Chubby's, a men's casual apparel brand, gained valuable insights by asking some of their customers to explain why they love their chubby shorts, when they wore them last, even asking for new product suggestions to guide their product roadmap. So put yourself in your customer's shoes with user testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed business decisions at scale. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Squarespace, Odoo, and User Testing. Thanks to Petra Andrin and Alan Jones for taking the time to come on to our show. Now, come visit our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows now that we've fixed the website. It's got all the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back with another episode. And as we get closer to the end of Series 9, we will really start to hone our focus on success. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 